Good morning, Embassy Church. Um, it's good to see all of you here this morning. As Etienne said, we're taking a break from our psalm series and beginning a new series in the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We're going to spend several months in this letter, and as we go through it, you're going to see just how practical uh, this letter is for modern-day Christians like us. You know, the letter actually answers a lot of our questions. As Christians, why do we have to experience anti-Christian trials uh, in our society, and what should we do about them? That's uh, Peter chapter 1. As Christians, how should we feel about the United States government? That's Peter chapter 2. How should we live out our marriages and stay unified at Embassy Church? That's Peter chapter 3. As Christians, in what ways should we expect to suffer, like in the United States workforce or in the general U.S. society? That's Peter chapter 4. As Embassy Church, what should elders do? What should church members do? And how do we together combat Satan? That's Peter chapter 5. So there's a lot to look forward to these next few months. Very practical letter. But, but, but before we do any of that, we first have to address an issue. And the issue is this. The issue deals with identity. Identity. We can talk about what we do, but first we need to talk about what we are first. You know, there's been a rise in our public discourse in the, fa in the past few decades um, concerning the use of that word, identity. And Christians began adopting this language of identity. Uh, more specifically, um, self-identity. Self-identity. The idea can be boiled down to this simple question. Who am I? Who am I? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Who am I? I believe Apostle Peter helps us better understand that question for us believers in our text this morning. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses. You can find uh, it on page 953 in your Black Pew Bibles, 953. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Please follow along as I read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. We have a preaching tradition here at Embassy Church to provide, you know, a big idea or a main idea very early on in the message. Um, today, we're going to reserve it for the end. We're going to work towards the big idea of the message, and we're going to do it by going through, by doing three things. First, we're going to talk about who Peter is. Okay, we're first going to talk about who Peter is, and then we're going to talk about who the audience is. And then lastly, we're going to talk about who God is. So who Peter is, who the audience is, the people that Peter's talking to, and who God is. And as we go through each question, each answer is actually going to help us answer the question I asked you all earlier, the question of who we are. So question number one, who's Peter? 
Who's Peter? How can knowing Peter help us know ourselves? The answer is actually in the text we just read. But before we see it, we first need to work through it. We need to walk through it. So verse 1 starts off with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So first we need to talk about Peter, and then we need to talk about apostle. So Peter. Peter is clearly the author of uh, this letter. Um, He's writing from Rome around the 60s. He calls himself Peter, but he wasn't born Peter. Peter was born as Simon, baby Simon. Simon was a, a, grew up to be a Jewish fisherman in Bethsaida. Um, uh, Simon got married. You see that in Matthew 8. And he also had a brother named Andrew. So in the Gospel of John, Andrew, his brother, meets Jesus first. Okay, so the, the, Andrew meets Jesus first. Andrew is completely fascinated by this Jesus man. So then he goes and grabs his brother, Simon, and says, you have to meet him. And then that's how Jesus and Simon met for the first time. Um, later on, Jesus renames Simon as Peter um, after he confesses Jesus to be the Christ. Um, the name Peter means rock. It means rock. Peter is probably the most famous disciple, right next to John and Paul. Among the apostles, Peter seems to be the most extroverted. He's the most extroverted. He, he's the, usually the first one to speak. He speaks more often than the other 11. He also tends to be rebuked the most often. And after denying three, uh, Jesus three times, Jesus forgives him, and then he goes on to be a dominant leader in the early church. So that's a little bit about Peter. We're talking about Peter, but he uses this word that we also need to address. Apostle. What is an apostle? We Christians use this word all the time. This is a Christian word. What does this word mean? The most basic understanding of this word apostle is someone who was sent, right? A sent one. It's an apostle. To be be a little more specific, it's a sent one with a message. Um, This is a a very generic use of the word. You see it in places like John 13, 16. It reads, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So that word messenger is in the Greek apostle. So at this point, you might be thinking, oh, does that mean everyone can be an apostle? Can I be an apostle? Is Pastor Phil an apostle? If I could categorize the meaning of apostle in tiers, and I think this will help us understand it. If we can uh, categorize the meaning of apostle in tiers, um, I would define apostle using three tiers. So that generic meaning is tier one. It's down here. Tier two is more official. It's more formal. This would be, on one side, this would be the 12 apostles, right? The ones, the men that Jesus handpicked for his ministry. And then on the other side of tier two, you have men like Apostle Paul, Apostle Barnabas, Apostle James, a third James. There are three Jameses. This one you can see from Galatians 1. And so there's tier one, there's tier two, and then there's tier three. Guess who's in tier three? Jesus. Jesus is an apostle. Hebrews 3.1 reads, consider Jesus the apostle. So if you want to see the tiers in terms of, you know, awards or statuses, tier three is platinum, platinum level. There's only one. Tier three. Tier two are all the gold medalists. Everyone in tier one gets participation trophies. In our church here at Embassy, we don't go around showcasing our participation trophies. 
Okay? We use the word apostle formally, officially, in that tier two status because that's how often the New Testament uses it. So we're trying to be consistent with, with, the, with the text. Okay, back to Peter. Back to Peter. We're trying to figure out what makes Peter, Peter. Did we get our answer yet? The answer is important because what makes Peter, Peter, might also be what makes you, you. I think Peter himself gives us a hint to how he establishes self-identity. Who does Peter say he is? In our text, in verse 1, he first identifies himself not as Simon, but as the identification that Jesus gave him. Simon is now Peter because Jesus identified him as Peter. You wouldn't do this anywhere else. You wouldn't do this anywhere else. Imagine if I got a new Illinois driver's license, and I, and I, and I got my card, and I looked at it, and I'm excited because it's a new driver's license card, and, then, and I look, and it doesn't read John Pay. That's, that's my name. It doesn't read John Pay. It just says Bob. No last name. It just says Bob. So later, if you were to meet me and you would say, oh, hi, John, would then I say, I'm Bob now? No, I'm still the same person. The reason Simon became Peter and stayed Peter is because Jesus gave him not just a new name, he gave him a new identity. Jesus gave Peter a new identity, the rock that confesses Jesus as the awaited Christ. Uh, Peter also identifies himself as an apostle, right? And he who belongs to someone. He's a believer who belongs to someone. So who he is, is him belonging to his master and teacher, Jesus. I think this is a very sweet image of a believer's essence, right? Who am I? I am someone who belongs to Jesus. I am who he says I am, and I am his. I am who he says I am, and I am his. So that's how Peter expresses self-identity. You know, in terms of your own expression of self-identity, how do you do it? How do you do it? Right, who are you? More specifically, who are you first? I think we can have so many thoughts about that question and how maybe all, any, a variety of us can answer it. You know, I was born a woman, but I feel like a man. That's who I am first. I know I'm loved by God, but I feel like a nobody. That's who I am first. We can go on. And I think, I think what this shows is that the answer, isn't, the answer isn't just the answer to the question, but it's also how you get to the answer. I think the answer to your question of self-identity is revealed in how you process that question. Who am I? We're going to keep talking about this throughout the message, this idea of identity. We first saw who Peter is and how that helps us understand our own individual identity. Now we're going to see who he's talking to. And maybe that'll help us see who we are corporately. So we talked about Peter. Let's talk about the audience. Who's the audience? Who is Peter talking to? Peter actually tells us, and he uses several words to identify his readers. He uses the word elect, 
right? If you look at, if you look at still verse 1, you, there's the word of elect, there's exile, and there's dispersion. So let's, figure, let's understand what these words mean. Number one, election, or elect. What is elect? Elect means chosen, right? When you elect someone, you choose them. So the elect are those chosen by God. He's getting this, from, this language from places like Deuteronomy 7.6, which Etienne read for us uh, this morning. It reads, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So in the Old Testament, God's people were the chosen ones, sharing in the honor and glory of God. So that language of being chosen reflects and communicates glory. Okay, that's elect. What about exile? Another way you can say exile, foreigners, strangers. This is also very Jewish language about the Israelites after the Babylonians took over Judah in 587 BC. The Jews were taken captive to Babylon. Prophet Jeremiah called on the people to be subservient to the empire, but still remain faithful to God. In the book of Daniel, you see Prophet Daniel live this out, submitting to the government that took him captive, but then drawing a line between worshiping the king and worshiping his God, the greater king. Um, Unlike the language of elect that communicates glory, this language of exile communicates suffering. Elect glory, exile, suffering. So we have, we've talked about elect, we've talked about exile. Let's talk about dispersion. What's dispersion? Dispersion, you could also say a scattering, right? A, sca- a scattered people. Again, this is Jewish language. God's people in the Old Testament experienced dispersion uh, as a direct result of Israel's failures of keeping God's covenant. Peter here seems to suggest that God's people in the New Testament experienced dispersion as a direct result of their faithfulness. So in the Old Testament, you have people being dispersed because of their failure, and in the New Testament, you have people being dispersed because of their faithfulness. So, elect, exile, dispersion, all Jewish language from the Old Testament. And so the, the text first seems to imply that Peter's audience is Jewish. The vast majority of New Testament scholars are in agreement that the readers are not primarily Jewish, but primarily Gentile. And they're not literal exiles from a country, but spiritual exiles from heaven. That sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Gentile, non-Jewish Christians spiritually exiled from heaven. There are many reasons for this uh, scholarly consensus on the audience being predominantly non-Jewish. If you're curious for for some evidence within the letter, uh, scholars refer to several passages. I'm going to read these fast if you want to look at them later. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, uh, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, and verses 13 of 14. Did you guys get all that? Great. The question is, how did these Gentile pagans become Christian? Right? How did they become Christian? Oh, pa- pagan means believing in multiple gods. That's what pagan means. Uh, this is what I think happened. In Acts chapter 2, during the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and filled all the believers. Um, you, some of you may be familiar with the story. Um, the Holy Spirit came down and filled the believers, and the believers began speaking in tongues. 
So the ethnic Jews from all the nations who were visiting Jerusalem at the time witnessed this and heard the believers speak in their own native language. Um, there are many regions listed to include people from Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia. That's Acts 2.9. And those are three of the list, those listed there. Th those countries are three of the five nations listed in Peter's letter. So I can imagine that those same people, right, they just witnessed this uh, supernatural event of hearing their own native language from the, 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 the Holy Spirit through the, the early believers, and then they also heard the gospel preached through uh, Peter. Um, after that moment, he, he, kind of, he preaches the first Christian sermon ever in Acts 2, and then they take both of those things and go back to their homeland, and then the gospel gets out. There are a lot of, the, uh, the, the Acts chapter 2 verse 14 says there were about 3,000 converts that day. An amazing, an amazing revival moment. Those, some of those people went back uh, to, their, to their Roman provinces and they spread the gospel through those pagan communities. And the gospel got out in the pagan world. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Five regions that make up uh, Asia Minor that uh, is located in modern-day Turkey today. So that's where, if you look on a map, that's where these regions would be, modern-day Turkey. Okay, so... The Gentile, pagan, uh, the Gentile pagans became Christian, right? That's good news. We should celebrate. Gentile non-believers became believers. That's great. But there's a problem. They're still living in a pagan world, right? They can't, they're not, we're not as economically mobile as us today in America where we could just kind of travel to different churches. We can kind of leave the community, go from state to state. They didn't have that luxury. They had to live in the pagan world, pagan nation, pagan family, pagan values, pagan ways of life. Um, New Testament scholar Steve Bryan from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School said this, the Christian Gentiles that we're talking about here, they have become outsiders from the inside. They have become outsiders from the inside. You can imagine how these new converts were treated by the people who had known them for years as, as mutual non-believers. Imagine just growing up just like everybody else, and then one day you love Jesus. That changes everything, doesn't it? Regardless of whether Peter's readers were Jewish or non-Jewish. I think this, this is the main point here. If they're believers in Christ, they will always be foreigners. Always. Um, in the United States, there's been a big cultural push towards um, inclusivity with an attempt to you know, weed out, push out xenophobia, bigotry, things like that. Um, culturally, our nation is being more sensitive to um, um, immigrants in the United States. Um, in other words, the message is if you're here in the U.S., regardless of whether you're a citizen or not, whether you're documented or not, you're one of us. If you're here in the U.S., you're one of us. You're not a foreigner. That's not a political assessment. That's a cultural one. That's kind of where we're headed as a nation culturally. Peter here is saying kind of the opposite. Peter is saying... If you're a believer in Jesus, it doesn't matter where you live. If you're a believer in Jesus, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what accent you have. It doesn't matter if your name sounds non-American. If, you, if you're a Christian, you will always be a foreigner in this world. 
always. Do you see this when uh, thinking about social issues? Roughly two-thirds of Americans affirm gay marriage. Uh, we here at Embassy Church love all people of all sexual orientations, but we don't affirm any marriage that contradicts God's standard for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 that Jesus later affirms in Matthew 19. Yet, how many of you here would feel comfortable saying in public what I just said? I believe marriage should be between one man and one woman by God's design. People might judge you, most likely. I mean, they will judge you, and they will probably insult you. And yet, Peter talks about marriage between one man and one woman in chapter 3 and explains the unique roles between a husband and a wife. The, role between, the roles between husbands and wives. Another thing the world probably wouldn't affirm. What about those who are currently employed, for those who are working? Have you ever felt this at your workplace? Kind of feeling like an outsider? Do you feel comfortable speaking openly about how much you love Jesus during the work duty day? Or do you feel like your company quietly discourages you um, from sharing the gospel while being openly respectful and inclusive of all religions? We love all religions, but you can't share the gospel. Peter again addresses what we should do in a company like that at the end of chapter 4. These examples I'm providing uh, regarding you know, modern-day America reflects the same kind of situation that the Gentile Christians were in. And that's what Peter's talking about. That's what Peter's talking about. If you are a Christian, you will always be a foreigner in this world. By the way, some Christians... Uh, recognize this, and try not to act like foreigners and exiles. Um, they want to, I mean, they want to be accepted by the world, right? They want to be Christians. They want to be accepted by the world. They want to be loved by the world. They want to be kind of like everybody else, and so they participate in the things that the world does, so they, they don't feel left out, right? Fear, fear of missing out. I'll give you an example. So many of you are glued to your phone. So glued to your phone, your messaging apps, your social media apps. Um, a lot of that stuff you want to keep private, right? We all know that. You want to keep that private. And yet you know everyone else is doing the same thing. So much of who you are is tied to that smart device. And for many, that's the primary way of integrating into the normal, into the mainstream. That's how you stay connected to the world. In terms of application, this is why we can't unify on things like uh, culture or nationality or uh, ethnicity or political identity. Those are such, they're, they're so temporary, temporary things. You are not a citizen of this earth. You are a citizen of a nation beyond this earth. You are a citizen of a nation beyond this. You, you have a spiritual passport. Your spiritual passport shows that you are only here on a temporary visa. Temporary visa. For most people, their visas last only about 80 to 90 years. It's a temporary visa. Embassy, you are only here on a very temporary, earthy visa. When your visa expires, you go home. And your home is where your true citizenship is. 
And until that moment, until then, God wants you here. God wants you here. This truth is actually inherent in the very name of our church. What's the name of our church here? It's embassy. And what's an embassy? An embassy is a location in one country that represents another country, right? We have U.S. embassies all over the planet. And we have embassies of heaven all over the planet. And we have at least one here in Palatine. Welcome to the planet. Welcome to embassy. Welcome to heaven on earth. Earlier, we were asking who we are individually. And now we ask, now we ask, who are we? Who are we collectively, communally, corporately? We are foreigners. We are foreigners chosen by God. We are exiles here, elect by God. That's who the ancient readers are, and that's who we are today. We talked about Peter and our individual identity. We talked about the readers and our corporate identity. So now, finally, third and last point, let's talk about God, right? Let's talk about God. Who is God? Who's God? We get a glimpse of who God is and how Peter describes the elect. So the purpose of today's Sunday message, um, we're going to first focus on the relationship between our election and God's foreknowledge, right? That's the first half. And then later, we're going to focus on the next two phrases together about the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. So um, everyone look at verse 2 with me, the first uh, portion of it uh, regarding election and foreknowledge. Peter says we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter says we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, For those those who don't know, foreknowledge means knowledge before the existence of something. So, you know, prior knowledge. That's foreknowledge. I think, I don't know if you've already thought of this question uh, when I read the passage there, but this raises an important question. Did God choose us because he foreknew we would believe? In other words, did God choose us because we would choose him? Or will we choose him because he chose us? This opens up an age-old debate about our human role in salvation. There is an answer. The answer comes from our understanding of that one word, foreknowledge. So I'll explain this using an illustration. Okay, let, let's say you have foreknowledge, right? You here have actual foreknowledge. And you foreknow that a dangerous snowstorm is headed to the city of Palatine. And you also foreknow that the storm is going to be very, very dangerous. It's going to put a lot of lives in danger. That's the illustration. A couple of questions. Number one, did you start the storm? No, you didn't start the storm. Can you stop the storm? No, you can't stop the storm. Uh, Can you force everyone to evacuate the city of Palatine? No. So, yeah, you have foreknowledge, but for the most part, your foreknowledge is inconsequential. You have no power over the storm. But God does. God does. God 
foreknows the storm. He can stop. He can start the storm. He can stop the storm. He can save people from the storm. So when we're talking about God's foreknowledge, we're not only talking about knowing information. God is all-knowing and he's all-powerful and you can't separate the two. God is the all-powerful causal agent of reality. This means you have to understand the causal agent's foreknowledge in a causal way. You have to understand the causal agent's foreknowledge in a causal way. Various scholars have done this, and they readdress uh, God's foreknowledge as foredecided, foreordained, foreknowledge as predetermining knowledge. Do you know who else affirms this idea? Peter does. Peter. In his Pentecost sermon, Peter said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's Acts 2, uh, 23. So the way you need to understand this is that we are chosen according to the definite plan of God. We are chosen according to the fore decision of God. Embassy, God decided you. God loved you before you began loving yourself. God decided you before your parents decided you. I want to briefly address a flawed understanding of what I just said. This flawed understanding is something called fatalism. It's called fatalism. The idea is that because God is in complete control, it doesn't matter what we do. That's fatalism. That kind of thinking, I would argue, is flawed and it's unbiblical. Peter said, Peter said and he knew that God definitely planned everything. So did Peter not evangelize? Did Peter not proclaim the gospel in Acts chapter 2? Did he not go on missionary journeys? Did Peter not pray? Peter accepted that God's will will be done, and he still lived out his salvation in faith and obedience and passion and discernment. Shouldn't we do the same? Peter actually tells us to do the same. He tells us to do the same throughout the whole letter of 1 uh, Peter. Peter tells us to not live in worldly passions. This is all straight from the letter. To not live in worldly passions. Peter says to submit to the government. He says to be good husbands, good wives. He said to stay united in the local church. He tells church elders to shepherd well. And he tells us to resist the devil. So Peter says all of that matters. There's human responsibility. There's free will. There's agency among us. Fatalism says none of that really matters because God's going to do anything anyway. Do you guys see the difference? Don't believe the lie of fatalism. It's a lie. Don't believe the lie of fatalism. Don't wait for a supernatural, miraculous uh, call that's so specific and unique to you. You know, fight against your bitterness. Fight against your bitterness after waiting, waiting for God to do something for you that he never really promised you. The reconciliation of God's plan and our free will, it's not, it's not logical. It works. It makes sense. But I do admit 
that once you get to a certain point, um, it's something I'll never fully understand. Right? It works. You see it in the Bible. You see it in our lives. It works. But I still accept it as a mystery. For short, short verses that express this, I, re- I recommend you look at uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1, 9, and 33. Here's what God's foreknowledge means. God didn't choose you because you chose God in the future. You chose God because he first chose you in the past. God didn't choose you because you would choose God in the future. You chose God because God first chose you in the past. Sometimes thinking about this uh, is difficult. Um, I, I mean emotionally. It can be difficult emotionally. When we think about God's foreknowledge and definite plan, um, we can often wonder what God is doing when we're experiencing, you know, great suffering. You know, when we endure great loss, when we're, when we're going through so much pain. God, I lost my job. God, I have cancer. God, my habitual sins are like sinking sand. I can't breathe. God, I have fallen into a pit of despair and I can't climb out. God, I lost someone I love. God, I'm being hurt by someone I love. God, don't you, don't you love me? God, don't you, don't you care about me? If that's where you are this morning, please know, please know that within the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus Christ shares with you pain and suffering. Um, Peter in chapter 2 references Isaiah 53 several times to tell his suffering readers how Jesus was the suffering servant. Peter says, Christ suffered and his wounds heal your wounds. Christ's wounds heal your wounds. Isaiah 53 is a very powerful read uh, if you would like to know what Jesus really went through during his earthly ministry and especially at the moment of the cross. Um, And I'll say this, I'll close this portion out. This suffering servant loves you. This suffering servant loves you very much and he is with you in your pain and suffering and he can do that because he was the suffering servant the reason you can get so close to jesus christ the reason you can get so close to such a holy god is because not because of anything we've done not because of how good we were but because how jesus died for your sins and the holy spirit makes you holy those two things close the gap between us and God. And that's the rest of the, of sec- the second verse. Please follow along as I uh, read the next two phrases. Verse 2. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So what's Peter doing there? He's using Old Testament language to, to describe a New Testament occurrence. He says that Jesus Christ sprinkled his blood for the purpose of our obedience to Jesus. He's getting this from Exodus 24, 5 through 8. I'll read the last verse. 
And Moses took the blood of the offering and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself as an offering on the cross, shed his blood in our place. On, the, on behalf of our sins, not his sins, our sins. Hebrews 12.24 reads, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and and, and, and to the sprinkled blood. The sprinkling of Jesus' blood, his death and resurrection, it began something new. It began something new. A new covenant and a new covenant people. It began a new covenant and a new covenant people. It's no longer just Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. This is good, this is good news for us, where most of us here are not ethnic Jews. This is good news for us, Embassy. We are chosen Gentiles in spiritual exile, just like the original readers of, of the letter. And so now, now, God the Father looks at us. He looks at us after the sprinkling of Jesus' blood and after the Holy Spirit makes us holy. So when he looks at us, he no longer sees sin, sin, sin. He sees righteous, righteous, righteous. How is that possible? How is that possible? He sees us righteous through the blood of the righteous Jesus. We are made holy only by the Holy Spirit making us holy. This is sanctification. The entire Trinity is involved. We kind of reached the end here. The entire, I don't know if you've noticed it by now. The entire Trinity is involved. God the Father and his foreknowledge. God the Son and his death that brought salvation and obedience. God the Holy Spirit and his sanctification. When the triune God sees us, he doesn't see our wickedness. He sees his holiness. And that is the effective power of the gospel. So I ask again for the last time. I ask again for the last time. Who are you? Who are you? We walked through the text from individual identity to corporate identity to God's identity. And this order is ironically how individuals in the world today try to discover their own self-identity. They start with, at the individual level. They start with themselves, and, and they kind of establish their own uh, uh, individual self, and then they have the society conform to their individual self, and then after that, they create a God in their own image. Peter, again, in an opposite way, shows us how we should start with who God is. Start with who God is and allowing who God is to shape our understanding of who we are together as a people, corporately, And after we discover who his people are, a reflection of God's triune nature, it's then that you can uh, discover who you are individually. That's where you can really discover who you really are. Our self-identity cannot be found within ourselves. Our self-identity cannot be found within ourselves. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. It's true. If God knew who you were before you knew who you were, then you can't start with yourself. You can't start with self-reflection. You can't start with self-meditation, self-medication. Who you really are can be discovered only through who God says you are because he knew you before you did. And God says you are chosen. God says you are chosen. You are a representative of heaven. You are a representative of heaven and that's how you obey Jesus in verse 2. 
That's how you obey Jesus. Embassy, continue being foreigners. Continue being strangers in a strange land. Continue to be representatives of the kingdom of God. Your home is not here. Your citizenship is not here. It's beyond here. I, I said that I would uh, leave my big idea for the end of the message. And so here it is. Um, what we work towards. After talking about who Peter is, after talking about who the audience is, and after talking about who God is, we can finally see that because God chose us, we know who he is and who we are. Because God chose us, we know who he is and who we are, both corporately and individually. Embassy, as Peter concludes his salutation, may grace and peace be multiplied to you all. Um, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your foreknowledge, for making your people holy, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood in our place. May we prove to, this, to the world this truth by obeying you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.